Happy birthday, Michael Kors. Congratulations for celebrating 40 years in fashion. You have so much to say, and it was such fun to talk with you that we are re-releasing the podcast. Your wise and witty words can be heard again, and your imagination, energy, and lively spirit revealed. Having just had a preview across the pond of this special anniversary collection, I know that it features a specially curated selection of iconic pieces through the decades. What a celebration for you and a pleasure for us. It was in 1990 and the ceiling of your downtown den started falling apart during your show and bits of it landed on my head. Oh my goodness. I mean... I remember it fell. Naomi Campbell came running backstage and she said, the ceiling hit Susie, the ceiling hit Susie. And I thought she was losing her mind. I thought she was crazy. Being British, I didn't sue you. (laughs) I am Susie Menkes and you are listening to my podcast, Creative Conversations. As a journalist reporting on the global fashion industry, I want to take you backstage and give you an insight into my world. Listen to my exclusive conversations with creatives, industry leaders, and those whose voices have some of the greatest impact. I think you might find it interesting and maybe intriguing. Michael Kors has been smiling through fashion for his mighty company to reach 40 next year. He is celebrating with a thoughtful reappraisal of past and future that has included the heights of dressing celebrities from Angelina Jolie through Jennifer Lopez to Michelle Obama, whose bared shoulders the designer brought to the fore. Building a brand in the 1980s had its hiccups and not least when the ceiling at one of the early 1990 shows started to collapse on my head. But the can-do, smile-through spirit of the designer brought him success at Celine in Europe from 1997 to 2003, as well as steady growth of his signature brand in the US and ultimately across the world. With his lifetime partner, Lance LaPere, who he married in 2011, Coors built not only a fashion business, but also a powerful accessories empire. That includes his own mighty label, but also Jimmy Choo and Versace under the name Capri Holdings Limited since 2019. The actor in him, starting at age five as a child model for a breakfast cereal, came back to life as a witty, entertaining, but sharp judge in Project Runway from 2004 to 2012. The current pandemic has had a thoughtful response from Michael Kors who has been the first American designer to nix the September timetable of shows and move his own to October-November, and to announce that he plans now to show only twice a year. Here is a chance to hear the real Michael Kors behind the permanent bronze skin and big smile, and to learn that feeding the hungry is as important to him as dressing the famous.
I'm so glad you agreed to do this. I feel very honoured and I'm very pleased because I'm counting on you to lift up my spirits. Well, you lift my spirits. I'm happy to see you. Albeit <laughs> I'll, I'll in the surreal way that we all have become accustomed to, but I'm still not accustomed to it. No, I know. I, f I feel much the same. Um, I really wanted to um, talk to you straight off about the news because... It's extraordinary to me that you have just announced that you will not be present for your show during the New York Fashion Week in September. And I haven't quite understood, Michael, is this about um, COVID-19 or is it a more general feeling that things have to change? I mean, whichever way it is, it means that you, who are one of the most important fashion houses in New York and, and one of the major reasons that I get on a plane to New York, you're changing lanes. What's the future plan? Well, I think if this is not about COVID. The reality is COVID certainly gave me time to analyze, reflect, slow down. Um, and for a long time, Susie, I have thought that we have been working with a calendar that, you know, honestly did not make logical sense. Probably other than myself and you, and maybe three or four other people, very few people can remember that the New York shows used to be after Paris. And when we were after Paris, uh, in fact, there was a, normally a five or a six day break that people could go home to whatever city they or country they lived in. They could regroup. They could see their families. They could go to their office. And then New York... Um, finished, uh, finished up the season. Um, and I think that that system worked quite well for decades and decades. And that did not change until the late 90s when Helmut Lang decided to shift the calendar and everyone followed suit. So when I look at it, we have, I think, overwhelmed the consumer. Um, September is the beginning of the fall season. And I think this is when people should be going into the shops, seeing the new autumn merchandise, and the weather is changing and, and people are able to buy something and wear it immediately. Um, I think it's very confusing for us to be promoting and giving great exposure to a new collection when most people have not even worn or seen the one that has just arrived in the shops. I so agree with you with this. And I'm one of those rare people who was around when the shows were later. And it was wonderful. It was, it sort of brought you a whole vision of what the other three um, lots of shows had been like. It was lively, but it was just what was needed at the time. But I want to ask you something else. Have I understood this correctly now? You're not showing it in September, but you're going to present your spring-summer 2021 sometime between mid-October and mid-November 2020. Um, is it Correct. a presentation that, as we've known it in the past? Is it a show? Am I coming over to New York just for you? Tell me more. Well, here's the thing. If COVID has taught us anything, Susie, it's that we have to sort of, number one, take things day by day, um, and we have to be nimble and we have to be fluid. Um, and I think at this moment, one of the reasons I'm not being specific yet um, about when that date is, is 
quite frankly, we have to see what happens uh, as far as people traveling, the health of people here in New York, um, and, and, and really what's the general, uh, the general state of the world at that moment. So it's also something that right now, do I see, you know, are we gonna have a fashion show uh, in October or November in the traditional sense of the word? No, absolutely not. Um, I think that right now, that's just an impossibility. Uh, interestingly for me, um, I, again, I don't want to sound like the old uh, wise owl, but I will. Um, you know, I present my collection. You've seen me do it when I preview the collection. Um, so I very much like that sort of close-up interaction with journalists, um, and I'm comfortable doing it. So I have so many options how we're going to present this both to the consumer in October or November and to the global press. But it's certainly not going to be Orville Peck and 700 people. That much I know. You've just um, reopened in Paris, am I right? Yes, we just opened last week. That store, Susie, it's so funny. You know, uh, I spent at Celine, I was there for almost seven years. And, and I really fell in love with Paris. Um, and it, you know, maybe I'm because I'm such a movie buff. Um, you know, Paris has always been so cinematic to me. And so the store, we really wanted it to feel like a, a Parisian salon where you have these sort of rooms that unfold into each other. And, and to be able to have the mix of Michael Michael Kors and Michael Kors collection um, under one roof um, in a beautiful uh, Parisian building. When I look at it, I never thought I'd walk down the Faubourg Saint-Honoré on the Rue Saint-Honoré and see Michael Kors, trust me. Um, so it's exciting to see that shop um, get revitalized and, and spring back with a whole new look. And, and what about Celine itself? Because you have had really a very um, important part in the life of Celine, which was nothing when you took hold of it and since then has gone from one big name to another. And so do you feel that that really helped you in the Michael Kors line? And did it help you to appreciate Versace or other big names in Europe? I think I learned that there was the global way to approach fashion that you, you didn't have to be so myopically, you know, French or American or Italian, that you really were thinking about the globe. And frankly, also, Susie, I learned about the power of accessories. I learned that the right handbag or the right sunglasses or the right watch or the right pair of shoes, they, they, they did not have a climate you know, it could be Jakarta or it could be Moscow. It could be Rio de Janeiro or Boston. And there was no age. Accessories were ageless. Um, you could be 17 or you could be 78. It didn't matter. So it was, it was a great eye-opening experience. And then, of course, to spend time in Paris was, you know, for me, life-changing. Now, 
Let's talk about some fun things. You are about to turn 40, or to be exact, and if my numbers are correct, it'll be 40 years of Michael Kors The Company in 2021. If I'm right, I think that's quite an achievement. You started, I've looked it up, in 1981, giving an edge and glamour to American sportswear. Now, when I'm travelling around the world, your name is everywhere. It's emblazoned on handbags. It's wherever I visit. You have grown from being in the New York garment district into a worldwide empire. Are you proud of your achievement? Susie, it is beyond my wildest dreams. I I have to admit, you know, I am competitive um, and focused, um, but... In a million years, you know, when I think back to 1981, there really, other than the big Parisian couture houses, there really were no global fashion businesses. Everything was still, you know, when you were in London, there was Catherine Walker or Jean Muir. Um, And when you were in New York, uh, there were designers who were specific to New York. And the same thing happened in every city. Um, You know, I I joke, but when I started, I thought global was Toronto, Canada. (laughs) I had no idea. I had no idea. Um, and, And I think that we have certainly, first off, I think that the world has gotten definitely uh, more casual. Um, People are living right now or not, but people, uh, are, are living a faster, more plugged-in life, which is, is quite frankly, something that started here in, in New York. And so I think that American fashion became more relevant. We're all plugged in together. Um, and I have to say, when I was at Celine, I think that was a big eye-opener for me, um, that I wasn't just thinking about New York and San Francisco, or even just London. You know, uh, I was thinking about Jakarta and I was thinking about Kuala Lumpur and what's happening in Istanbul. So I saw that there was really the possibility of a much wider audience than just being specifically, you know, American sportswear. It it was really an eye opener for me. Um, I'd like to remind you of the first time we really talked It was in 1990 and the ceiling of your downtown den started falling apart during your show and bits of it landed on my head. Being British, I didn't sue you and you sent me such a nice bunch of flowers. Do you remember your early beginnings? Oh my goodness. I mean, well, first off, Susie, I I think uh, when I think back to this sort of Mickey Rooney... Judy Garland, oh, let's put on a show. You know, I didn't have any money. There was nothing organized or, 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 or quite frankly, that polished about those fashion shows, you know, so that the ceiling, in fact, I remember it fell. Naomi Campbell came running backstage and she said, the ceiling hit Susie, the ceiling hit Susie. And I thought she was <laughs> losing her mind. I thought she was crazy. Um, when I started, you know, back in 1981, um, I, I truly, I borrowed a little bit of money from some family friends. Um, I was working out of my apartment on 7th Avenue, no showroom. 
Um, uh, the first, first journalist I showed the collection to was Anna Wintour. Um, but I wouldn't let her come to see me because it was my apartment. So I brought the collection to New York Magazine, where she worked at the time, um, on the subway. I couldn't even afford to buy sewing machines. I rented them and I, I rolled them down 7th Avenue to my apartment. Um, and I, I, I had a very slow and steady um, growth period. I didn't do a fashion show, in fact, for the first three years. Um, I, I, I wanted to make sure that I, I really had my sort of kinks worked out, that I could produce the clothes, that I had clients, that it all made logical sense. Um, and I think I wasn't in such a grand rush. And I think that, you know, I see a lot of young people. Um, I have a scholarship that we endow at FIT. And every year when I talk to the students, they're in such a tremendous rush. And I always tell them I was in a rush also. I was 20, 21. But in fact, I didn't expect to be an overnight sensation. So it built slowly and slowly. Um, and I think a lot of the growth for me was traveling all around America and, and meeting clients and, and seeing how they lived, um, seeing, seeing what kind of lifestyle they led. So I wasn't sort of designing in a, in a box, in, a, in an ivory tower. Um, and, you know, but of course, after 40 years, Susie, you know, from plaster falling on your head to chapter 11 in the 90s, um, to the AIDS pandemic in the late 80s, to economic collapse in 88, 9-11, another economic collapse, uh, licensees that go belly up. I mean, I've ridden a lot of roller coasters, and I think the big thing, quite frankly, is you have to stay true to your gut, know who your clients are, and just always look forward, don't look back. I'd like to ask you a question about somebody in your famous front rows has always been there, and I'm talking now about your dear mother. I've often sat next to her at shows, and I'm sure she must be part of your fashion history. Will you tell me about her? And, of course, there are other people, clients and friends. And, of course, there's Lance, Lance LePere, your life partner of 30 years. But it's your mother who I especially think about. Tell me. All right. Well, so first off, by the way, Lance and I are married. Uh, we married in uh, 2011. Uh, we've known each other for 30 years. Um, and we've been together now 20. So, of course, in the fashion world, 20 years is, you know probably 120 years, something like that. Um, and we work together, he's the creative director on the collection, and I, I couldn't do what I do without him. My mom, uh, quite frankly, I think, when we think about supporter, muse, sounding board, um, all of those things, um, and I think, Susie, my mother, you know, it's funny, she's not a fashionista. She, she wants to look great. She's always been interested in, in how she, how do I put it? How she appears, but she's not a trendy person at all. Um, and I think when I was very small growing up, I was surrounded by very opinionated women um, from the minute I can remember. And my mom has always had very understated taste 
She, she's a rule breaker. My mother played, you know, American football with men. Uh, in fact, tried out for an NFL team, which is a whole other story. My mother rode motorcycles. I mean, she's done a lot of things that are definitely left of, of center. Um, and I think that the way she dressed was always about simplicity, comfort, timelessness. And it was the opposite of how my grandmother, for instance, dressed. My grandmother was very exaggerated, exuberant, color, jewelry, glamour. Um, and I saw all these different, uh, I don't know, different tribes of fashion growing up. And I think I, I, I'm an only child, so I watched all the tribes and I thought about how women are able to tell the world who they are with how they put themselves together. But my mom, Susie, her best review of a Michael Kors show, we had a show once where the skirts were virtually a foot long and they were basically up to all of the supermodels' crotches. And as soon as the show was <laughs> over, I said to my mom, what did you think? And I thought, you know, my mom wears trousers. So I thought she'd be horrified. And she said, I wanted to wear everything you showed. And I said, what does that mean? She said, I can't and I won't wear everything you showed, but I wanted to. And I thought it was the best, fabulous review because she was really focused on the dream of it, not the reality of it, which I thought was really spot on. Um, some of these secrets about the people you have a special relationship with. That's the A-listers. Dare I ask if your front row has a single favourite? Or shall we make that three or maybe four? Well, uh, I would say, you know, for a designer, there, there's, I always think there's this yin and yang of women who know themselves very well so they know what works on them and they know what works for their life, but then they're still willing to experiment and try new things. So, you know, automatically I think of, you know, whether it's someone very young like Zendaya. Zendaya has worn everything from glamorous Michael Kors evening gowns to a tracksuit with a trench coat. And, and I think she has fun with fashion. She enjoys uh, expressing herself through fashion. Then, of course, I go and I think about someone like Gwyneth Paltrow. I've known Gwyneth now for more years than I could count, sort of probably, I don't know, since 1998. And, and she's very much, to me, someone who I've watched her add all of these things into her life. You know, actress, mom, wife, business mogul, all of it together. And somehow she always looks effortless. Um, and and I, I think she also has a very sort of uh, interesting point of view that when it's daytime, it's very casual. And when it's evening, it's very sleek and, 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 and sexy without ever being obvious. And then I probably the other two women that automatically come to mind, you know, she's never been to a Michael Kors show but probably my greatest moment ever in fashion 
was dressing Michelle Obama for her first official portrait. Um, she, she broke all the rules. You know, she wore a black jersey, athletically cut dress for an official portrait. When normally we saw first ladies in stiff, colorful suits. Um, I think that I think that she is someone who I always think about when we're designing a collection, because I think she really understands the power of fashion. Um, you know, then there are people I don't know. Nicole Kidman, Susie, another person who loves fashion. Kerry Washington, another person who just they their their faces light up when they see something new and beautiful. They understand beautiful quality, beautiful fabrics, um, and, and at the same time, they're busy and talented and smart. It's, it's what I always think about, the jugglers. What I think about with you is that I know that as well as these A-listers, and we could go on and on with that, you also connect with ordinary customers, if we dare call them that, in your trunk shows. You know, I think you're one of the few, maybe the only high designer, high end, who moves into the stores and offers the personal touch. Do you actually enjoy these relationships? Is that why you do it? And will they still be feasible with the shadow of the virus upon us? Well, number one, it is probably out of anything I do, more than a fashion show, more than a red carpet, it is my favorite thing to do. Because when I see a customer in real life wearing something of mine, whether it's something that I've shown on the catwalk or it's a Michael Michael Kors handbag and I see someone on the subway or on the street, it's when I really know that I've done my job well. It works in life. Um, you know, so I, I, in fact, right before we went into lockdown here in the States, I did three trunk shows after the New York show in February, before I went on holiday. Um, and now, of course, we talked about being nimble. This, Susie, you know, after 40 years, you think you've seen and done it all, but you haven't. Um, I've done two trunk shows on Zoom. We did one with Michael Kors clients here in North America, um, all across the country. And we did one with Neiman Marcus clients all across the country. And I'm also going to be doing one with Netta Porte. Um, and I have to tell you, if I can't see the women up close, well, in fact, we still can communicate on Zoom. I can see what they're wearing. All of the clients got very dressed up, which I thought was great. You know, there was no one. I'm wearing a hoodie. Trust me, none of the clients were wearing a hoodie. <laughs> I can imagine they were dressed up to the nines. So, Michael... I've tried to understand your three different collections and I want you to tell me whether I've got this correctly. That number one, I think in every sense of the word, is the Michael Kors collection that was launched in 1981. And it was launched as a sportswear label but with a very super sophisticated semi-casual clothes. Number two, Michael, Michael Kors, the Diffusion line, launched in 2004. Bit more trendy, sporty, colourful, but also stylish and urban. And then three, Michael Kors Men's, launched in 2002. Have I got that right? Will you give me a job? <laughs> you are spot on. And I am going to, from now on, when questions come to me, I will say, please refer to Susie Menkes. <laughs> you are spot on. Good. So 
Of course, there are changes in your life, aren't there? The Capri Holdings Limited, the name of your fashion group, with the um, parent company owning Jimmy Choo Shoes and also Versace, which was bought in in 2018. And um, I believe it came, you, you bought it in for um, over $2 billion. Um, Have you always had your eye on Medusa? It looks like the ownership will mean that Donatello is putting more focus on accessories because that is what you've always been so smart on. Are you involved in all of this? Are you part of Donatello's empire now? I think that, you know, me personally, all three brands, Jimmy Choo, Michael Kors and Versace are truly freestanding. There's no, you know, we're, we're not all gathered in a room together kind of talking about what's happening um, I think that's what's interesting. Frankly, all three brands have such a strong point of view. Um, and you're talking about also all three brands have the, uh, the, the, the founder is still with the brand. Um, that being said, you know, with Donatella, Versace, I'm always thrilled by brands and designers who have a point of view, understand their customer, um, there's a focus. And, you know, I see that with Jimmy Choo. I see that with Versace um, and Michael Kors. So, I mean, probably the most, you know, the commonality, Susie, I think Donatella and I definitely like a suntan. And we definitely, you know, we definitely go for blonde <laughs> hair. But other than that, um, I, I think all the, all the players involved are great operating on their own. Something that I remember, and I, I don't believe that anyone who saw it could ever forget, was Iman walking down the runway in a turtleneck and grey flannels for your very first runway show back in 1984. And back then you were already completely embracing diversity. There's a lot of talk about that going on in the world now, and the circumstances are evolving across the world. What are your urgent thoughts on this subject? Well, you know, I think the one thing that's so uh, crazy when I think about it, you know, when I was a judge on Project Runway, we'd have young designers who would say things like, oh, I don't design for older women. I don't design for curvy women. I don't design for petite women. And I kept thinking, well, then I don't know what you're doing because the reality is, as a human being and as a designer, isn't it more interesting to see the breadth of people who can appreciate and wear what you do and put their own spin on it? So, you know, I mean, for me to see a fashion show with one kind of model, that they're all of the same ethnicity or even all the same age or the same size, why aren't you looking at a show with Patty Hansen in her 60s, another model who's a teenager, uh, a model who is from the South Sudan, someone who's from Korea, someone who's Ashley Graham size, someone who is transgender? The mosaic of the world is, is honestly what's uh, so inspirational about me, for me as a designer and also one of the reasons why I'm such a proud New Yorker, because that is, that is the visual stimulus that we see. And, and also not designing 
designing uh, in buckets. You know, Iman once said to me, she said, you know, when I first met her, she said, Michael, you're not ever thinking about dressing me exotically. You know, uh, to me, all American is Iman, all American is Ashley Graham, all American is Karen Elson. It doesn't matter who you are. It's, it's, it's the attitude. Um, and that's how I've always approached it. And now more than ever, we have to let people know that the individual puts their own spin on how you wear something, regardless of, uh, of any, any sort of rules or specificity. I've noticed that I couldn't miss it, that there's always some wonderful and witty and entertaining part to your shows. From Barry Manilow, that was perfect, to the Young People's Chorus um, uh, in your show, which was very beautiful from Brooklyn. And um, what about your last show in February? It now seems completely prophetic because you had the singer Orville masked. Did you really feel in touch with what was going on to happen in the world? And are you planning to produce any Michael Kors branded masks? Well, Susie, I, I don't want to sound like I'm a, a psychic or a soothsayer, but, you know, the, the whole mood behind the fall-winter collection was about comfort, privacy, coziness, and, in fact, our set was a country house. And, you know, there was the idea of coziness at home uh, because I just felt that we're living in a time where there's too much information and our lives have become very public. So I was thinking about that privacy and sort of the luxe security blanket. And then Orville, uh, when we were thinking about, did we want to have an entertainer? So I love his music, love his writing, love the voice, but I also love that he has a private life. So he has never been photographed without his mask. So no one knows what Orville looks like. Um, so he can go anywhere in the world and live his life. And isn't that wonderful? So I, I didn't predict that we would all have a wardrobe of masks. Um, coming up soon this, this fall, uh, we will be making uh, MK signature masks. And we're sorting through all the details on that. Um, and, you know, this has become, let's be frank, Susie, I used to be a smoker. So, you know, cigarette cases and lighters and all of that, they were part of our fashion accessory, strangely. Well, now I think we all have to realize that, in fact, a mask is, for the time being, uh, it's going to be part of our fashion accessory wardrobe, so why not have a great-looking one? It's a great idea, but there's no doubt, I think, for all of us that we've seen such a big change in our lives across the globe with COVID-19. How concerned are you now that people are going to spend in the way that they used to? Have you managed to evolve your business in the recent months? You were talking about um, holding these um, sales for or, or to incite um, customers and consumers. But do you think that the way consumers shop has really changed forever? Or is it now 
a digital first, but it could be something else. Are we going to go back to shopping as we used to so very recently, just three or four months ago? Well, I think, Susie, one of the things that started to happen before COVID, and now COVID really makes it even more uh, more uh, important for us to look at things this way, is the idea of buying less and buying better quality, buying something that is an investment, that has versatility. I think the idea of disposable fashion is truly now finished, regardless of your age, regardless of where you live, and also the idea of pride of ownership. You know, that you found something that makes you feel great. Well, you're not going to want to wear it once and resell it. I think those days are diminishing. So I think COVID just has sped that process up. So we're really thinking about designing things that I think are the, the pieces that people will hold on to for 20 years, you know, not, not for just a season or two, um, and that they can wear in a, a, a many, many ways. As far as how you shop, well, I think that we're starting to see that there is this sort of hybrid that perhaps for many people um, walking into a store might feel maybe like walking into a showroom that you sort of, you get an overview, you get to see it, and then you say, okay, fine, I can mix that and, and I can then leave the shop if I want, if I want to shop quickly, and I can shop and, and, and shop online, whether it's on my phone or, or on an iPad or however you want to shop. So I think it's a hybrid. Um, as far as the roller coaster of fashion, well, I've been at it for 40 years. Fashion is like food, Susie. When we eat salad for three weeks and we feel sort of deprived, the first thing we want to do is have a big dessert, a cheesecake, something. So I think if we see this period of, you know, uh, quiet, and, and people really understanding quality and quiet, the roller coaster will turn. I don't know when. But suddenly, the next thing you know, people will be dancing on tables. You know, if we have a vaccine, what will happen? It's hard to predict. Um, but I think people will respond. Fashion always reflects what's happening. You also reflect the kind of person who wants to give something back. And um, I can't let you go without talking about your philanthropy. I looked at what you've achieved, and it's pretty impressive. You've supported the um, God's Love We Deliver, that non-profit um, meals for the sick in New York City. Um, you partnered with the um, United Nations in 2013 to help fight world hunger. And to date, you've helped the um, World Food Programme deliver 17 million, that's 17 million meals to hungry children. Does all this come back in some way to your own childhood? Do you remember family meals and the importance to your life? Is that where it's grown from? Well, first off, I don't want to. I don't want to correct you, but I will. Uh, we're at 19 million meals, which is unbelievable. Wow. Uh, we're wow. going to hit. We're going to hit 20 million meals with the World Food Program um, this year. If 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 I have the strength and power to keep making the noise, we're hitting the 20. Um, I think that Susie, two things that happened for me. I like seeing results. I'm very results-oriented. You know, I, I, and back in the 80s, 
when we were dealing with the AIDS pandemic, I, I, like a lot of people, I felt helpless. And when I looked around, I kept thinking, I'm not a doctor, I, I, I'm not a scientist, but what can we do right now in the here and now? And we saw that there were people in New York who were in their homes, who had been abandoned by family and friends and had no access to nutritious food. So God's Love was this organization that, that was the only organization that brought food into these people's homes. As I grew my business and I traveled more, I saw that around the world, we had the, the horrible, horrible issue of hunger when there was food, in fact, available. And the World Food Program was the perfect partner in that they could deliver meals, particularly to schools, because the school meal program has, in places like Nicaragua and Cambodia, this is why parents are sending their children to school, because when they go to school, they get a meal. So it's, it's results-oriented. And then, Susie, I have to go back what you asked originally. I am a nice New York Jewish boy, and family meals were very important. And, you know, my grandmother, I think, definitely prescribed to the idea of food is love. And to think that we have neighbors right in the cities we live in and, and people who we're all connected around the world who are hungry and we can solve that problem, to me, it's just, it seems such an automatic thing for everyone to care about and everyone to be involved with. Michael, I must say something to you. Whenever I see you, and of course today, you're someone who seems permanently cheerful and your smart casual clothes seem to reflect your enthusiasm for getting on with life. Are you fashion's eternal optimist? Well, I hope I'm not a cockeyed optimist um, like South Pacific, but I am the optimist, Susie. I, because I have to say, I have uh, ridden uh, a lot of hills and valleys in my career. Um, everything from chapter 11 to Michelle Obama in Michael Kors for her portrait. Um, I've seen, you know, uh, the biggest, uh, the biggest uh, IPO in American fashion history. And, and I've seen economic downturns. I've seen the ups and, 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 and downs. But at the same time, I believe in when we think positively and we're empathetic and we care about other people, we get to a better place. And maybe it's also spending time in so many changing rooms, fitting rooms around the world that when I see a client put on the right thing, you suddenly see their posture change. They walk differently. They, they, they perform differently. So no, it's not science. It's not politics. It's, 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 it's the power, though, of making people feel their best self. So yes, I wave the flag for that no matter what. Um, I believe that that's my job. That's ultimately my job, in a nutshell.
make you feel like your best self. You've made me straighten my back and smile. You've given us so much information. It's been fascinating. I could talk to you all afternoon, but um, I dare say you've got a collection to put together. And um, I'm so grateful to you for giving us so much time and being so open and fresh. It's a joy to listen to you. Susie, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. You know that. Great to see you. Michael, it's been a joy to learn more about you in your own witty words and to understand the importance of philanthropy in your life. From the beginning, you have wanted to give back. I loved hearing about your mother, whose modelling career introduced you to fashion. And it has been interesting to hear your insightful vision about reducing the speed and the amount of fashion in the post-COVID era. Thank you for being so open and honest. If you have enjoyed the podcast, then please do rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, YouTube, and many others. Creative Conversations with Susie Menkes is produced by Natasha Cowan and edited by Tim Thornton. Music by Jörg Zuber, graphics by Paul Wallace, and production assistance by Lauren Sweeting. To find my articles, visit susiemenkes.com and susiemenkes on Instagram.